following episode most likely contains graphic language, details of violence, and murder, and may not be suitable for all audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. What is up, everybody? Welcome to episode 48 of Murder With My Mother, the true crime podcast where I talk murder with my mother. This lady right here. This lady right here. If you guys can't see us and you're just listening, it's my... Beautiful mother, Christina. Christina, the mother of Murder With My Mother. <laughs> the mother part, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Remember when you said I was the mother one time? In a yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. Um, feeling young that day, I guess. Yeah. Surprise, you guys, we're back two weeks oh, later. Oh yeah, how about that? Ha-ha. We're See? actually back. We're actually back. I talk a lot of talk, but, you know, got to back it up once in a while. <laughs> Every couple of years, I'll back it up and actually come back when I say so <laughs> yeah we're getting you guys invested exactly so well we are the third podcast mother-daughter podcast on the internet so Woo! <laughs> I think I said fourth last time but <laughs> then we did some more research and we're actually the third so yeah so honestly the current events last time I remember was kind of like oh uh, there wasn't much going on okay well we've been blown out of the fucking water because a completely blown out <laughs> For all of you true crime fanatics, like the real true crime fanatics, there has been, I think it's about the last 13 years, there has been an unsolved murder, serial serial killer, killer. Yeah. so unsolved murders um, along Gilgo Beach, it's known as, in In, Long Island. And also, it's gone to the point of like... people, I watched this big conspiracy documentary on it when they didn't have any information like... It was the chief of police planned it and like all of this stuff. There's been so much speculation oh, over this case. Crazy. So, I mean, obviously that's what we like to do. We like to speculate because it's like when you don't know who's murdering these people, it's scary and it's so many different things. Like it brings like a, I don't know, you're like, who could be doing this? Who could be doing yeah. this? Um, obviously too, we want justice because you, you guys know that's what we... That's our main goal. Yeah, top priority over here. Justice for the victims. So the Gilgo Beach serial killer suspect had a somewhat blasé reaction (laughs) uh, when a group of plainclothes police officers swooped in in the heart of busy Manhattan on a street and arrested him um, right outside his workplace. And he's just like a big architect. Like he's just a like nondescript looking Caucasian male. Yeah, he's a 59-year-old man, married father of two, named Rex Hoerman. Hoerman. And he was taken (laughs) into custody as he left his architecture business in Midtown Manhattan on July 13th. So literally, I think, when did we drop our last episode? Like this just... Yeah, it was like the next day, I think. Yeah. It was because we posted on our socials the the breaking news the very Mm -hmm. same day that the the podcast came out yeah and so he has been charged with the uh three of the gilgo four so four victims um that they refer to as the gilgo four um this has gone unsolved so he is now charged in the death of megan waterman melissa Bartholomew, and amber costello and the arrest comes more than 13 years after the victim's bodies were found along gilgo beach and the trippy thing is, too, is that I think what was the total number of, of people that were found? Like, there were about 11, yeah. I think. And the police just kind of brushed off. So the first girl that started it, her name was Shannon, and they just kind of brushed it off. Like, 
Um, most of the victims were sex workers. Mm-hmm. And but we see that as we target, see every right? single time, uh, the police were like, oh, yeah, she just went missing. Yeah. Or, yeah. She lived a high risk lifestyle yeah. and she went missing. So he's actually also the prime suspect in the murder of Maureen Brenard Barnes, who was last seen alive in early June of 2007 in New York City. And so, she was also found in the same exact manner as the other three yeah. were um, in burlap. Mm-hmm. Which is like a calling card of yeah. calling cards because bur- burlap, like, yeah. of course, that's not going to be every murderer because we do see and I mean, Highway of Tears, right? We know that. There's so many murders along the Highway of Tears. That's a, we've touched on it, a highway in northern British Columbia where a lot of women have been murdered. But we know that it's not just one person murdering these people. And I think that that's kind of what we're seeing here is there's obviously a couple killers at work, um, but we've been able to narrow it down that it's Rex Hoorman, who's probably at least responsible for those four, but it's still in the early stages. Yeah. And I mean, he is, they're digging up his yard right now. Yeah. They're, he lives in Massapequa Park. Massapequa Park. Massapequa Park. Yeah. And they're doing a major excavation. They have cadaver dogs. They have ground penetrating yeah. radar. Um, a teenage kid threw it, flew his drone over top. One of the neighbors. Fucking love and that's uh, drones. <laughs> and that's uh, what's going around like CNN and all that stuff. I fell asleep actually uh, last <laughs> night to Nancy Grace. Like, oh my God, there's so much going on. And Can't wait to see you, Nancy. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it was. It's pretty crazy though. Like they have um, the. The forensic anthropologists are holding up these patterns and they have stuff dug up. They have the whole deck off the house. Yeah, they actually even said that they found a huge walk-in vault with a big iron door and they described the search as fruitful. So investigators said that they also believe that some of the murders actually took place inside the home, but they are unable to confirm it at this time 100%. But of course, if you find all that shit, a door? Like, who do you think you're keeping in the big, huge, iron vaulted door? And what the fuck I don't understand is like, if you're boring, Shrekish looking husband, <laughs> all of a sudden you go away on a vacation. Because like they Shrek. say that um, they can pinpoint at least the three to when the wife and the kids used to go away. They had like a, they had family that lived somewhere where they would go visit quite frequently. Always hear that. It's like, like, it's like a bad teenager when I'd be like, Hey mom, when are you coming home again? Oh yeah. We were just talking about that. What about now mom? Are you coming home? Hey mom, call every 15 minutes. Like you're just, you're not coming home. Right. It's, and you just picture Rex Hewerman like, Hey honey, when are you coming home (laughs) with his fuck? But wouldn't you notice if there's like a big vaulted door anywhere on your property? Like you would, but I mean, if you are married to kind of a weird dude and he can explain it away, however he could explain it away, then I guess you kind of, I think a lot of people live ostrich life where they just bury their head wherever and they don't want to see the things that they know because how could you not know your husband of however many years? I think a long time. He's like 59 years old. Yeah. At least I would say 15, 20, probably longer, probably the whole amount of time they've been married. He's been murdering people probably before that. Well, I think that also, I mean, if he has psychopathy, then he doesn't feel any remorse or any guilt. So his behavior is not going to lead anyone to suspect. However, if you look at the neighborhood on any of the news reports, it's like it's the houses aren't far apart from each other. It's like, no, it's just like a regular neighborhood. Yeah. The neighbors are like, oh, my God. Yeah. Everyone's like completely shocked about it. Yeah. 
And that's what you always see. Remember BTK? Like, we haven't obviously covered BTK, but you guys know who I'm talking about. Dennis Rader, like, (laughs) is the most, like, he was running the church program and... Yeah, had a wife and kids. Yeah, and he printed something off when he came back, BTK, years later from his church computer. And that's how, or the 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 floppy disk that he used or whatever... But it's like, you know, obviously it didn't translate well over the decades of like, okay, now we have this technology. (laughs) But yeah, you're going to be caught eventually. Everything done in the dark will always come to light. If you're a serial killer and you're fucking killing people at your own house with your big iron door when your wife goes out of town, it's just, it's going to come to light. It's just so gross. (laughs) That's one word to use to describe it. It It is gross. It is. horrific and gross. And think about like the deceit you feel if your partner had an affair (laughs) okay imagine knowing that like your partner was doing all this stuff and you were living in the same shared space with them Mm -hmm. even the revelation that you don't even fucking know this person at all and you've been married to them for so long yeah we've had things happen in relationships where it's you know oh my god how could i miss (laughs) that you know or what but this holy shit the guilt that you would probably feel and just probably this array of emotions yeah i can't even imagine me neither no but to segue you guys know we love a good segue nobody expected that right and the case that we have today we've touched on kind of cases where it was parasite right where we know when people get mad at their parents patricide patricide parasite i was whatever <laughs> parasite. i'm tired well fuck this bitch yeah. is a parasite yeah. so anyway the case that we're covering today is the 2010 murder and attempted murder of uh, bick and han pan so yeah we'll just jump right into this case because yeah it's a it's a it's a trip it is Okay. It was a cool November evening like any other in the quiet Unionville neighborhood in Markham, a city about 30 kilometers outside of downtown Toronto, when a phone call came into police. A hysterical voice of a woman saying she was tied to a banister by thieves who broke in and robbed her family home. She explained that she feared her parents were in danger. The woman calling was 24-year-old Jennifer Pan, As Jennifer recalled in what seemed like a hysterical horror to the 911 operator, a sudden scream could be heard in the background of the conversation. The blood-curdling screaming turned out to be Jennifer's father, Han Pan. He had been shot in the face and was in the stage of shock running out of the door after the perpetrators. He had been shot, but his wife, Bick, had been shot dead and she was still in the basement. Jennifer could be heard screaming for her father, but he never came for her. Police wondered why Bick and Han were shot, but Jennifer remained unharmed. What unfolded in the days after left everyone in shock and disbelief, and Jennifer quickly went from a grieving daughter to the devil in disguise. And that that phone call is actually a trip because she is hysterical and she's talking and everything, and then you can tell that when you hear in the background the dad, mm-hmm. her whole tone changes. Because it's like, uh-oh. Uh-oh, yeah. Yeah. But again, at this time, nobody, initially nobody is suspecting, right? Nobody is thinking. Because, I mean, if you guys haven't figured it out, 
Obviously, Jennifer had something to do with the murder of her mother and the attempted murder murder of her father. So we're just going to get, obviously, into some background information. Because the background here is, is really what, what yeah. matters. And so her parents had come to Canada. Um, they actually fled. They fled Vietnam. Um, there was a lot of stuff going on in Vietnam for years and years and years. And I think when you could get out they basically they had to find a way to get out and i know that they were they referred to them as boat people so yeah it would just be i mean i dated a guy from vietnam like years ago and his family had come over also in the 70s um obviously there's a there was the vietnam war with mm -hmm. um the united states yeah. and if you know any of the history it it was so crazy there there were tunnels built all underneath a uh, couple of the cities where the people, the Viet Cong would come underneath these tunnels to fight the war. Basically mm -hmm. they fought, fought a lot of the war underground, yeah. but a lot of the, there was um, the government not being good to their own people. So yeah. a lot of people fled the country and they would just congregate on boats and just like hope for the best with their yeah. whole families. And I'm sure a lot of people's lives were lost just from trying to escape. They right? were lost. And then when they got here, obviously, or wherever they decided that they were going to go, they had nothing. So these people were traumatized, not only leaving their country, but arriving in this country with nothing. Like I know that the guy that I dated was, he, he was old enough to remember the whole thing and mm -hmm. showing up here uh, with no money, basically the clothes on their back and their parents uh, then worked extremely, mm -hmm. extremely hard because these were also people coming from um, high um, paying, not really high paying, but like jobs of, of great stature, Yeah, whether they be scientists, doctors, whatever, coming here with nothing and having to take these jobs of, you know, Factory menial, yeah, factory workers, yeah. cleaners, and just trying. And so they instilled that hard working um, mentality into their kids because that's, that's how they survive. Yeah. Well, basically you see it all the time when people come to this country and they're coming for the American dream, you know, obviously the Canadian dream, whatever yeah. that is, we're trying to build what's, you know, get as start much, fresh. yeah, start fresh, but also give our children a good opportunity. So what happens to happen to us cannot happen to them. Yeah. So Han, um, which is, uh, the father, he moved in 1979 to Canada as a political refu refugee. And Bick also immigrated as a refugee. The couple were married in Toronto and they lived in Scarborough. Their two children, Jennifer, who was born in 1986, and Felix, who was born in 1989, uh, were, they were very close. Everyone said the family was very close family. The Pans found work at Magna International, which was an auto parts manufacturer in uh, Aurora, Ontario. Han worked as a tool and die maker and Bick made car parts. Han and Bick were thrifty and they saved, they were very good at saving. And by 2004, they were financially stable enough to purchase a quite a large house with a two car garage on a residential street in Markham. It's so crazy. Like I haven't been able to save up enough money to buy a house now. <laughs> and I, <laughs> 
I just have a regular life, yeah. but like, okay. it's well, crazy. It's a whole fucking different time I get right it, now. but still, like, you see so many um, families that are immigrating <laughs> that, like, they do whatever it takes. They pool together. They work as many hours as they have to. And you're like, I need to go for a smoke break. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, and I'm like, what? I'm not working late. I Yeah. I, honestly, it's a whole growing other up level. with a lot of immigrant families, yeah. like, I love that about Canada. I love that there's such a mixed variety well, of we're people all immigrants here. here we are yeah. yeah i mean unless you're indigenous yeah. you are an immigrant so really at yeah, the end of the day of, of immigration like you've immigrated your descendants have yeah so. exactly so i know just growing up you see that like I, I would have friends where you'd go to their house and you would never see their parents one time because they're working four <laughs> jobs yeah. each you know just to give their kids everything that they needed um, to make sure they can put their kids in a really good university which is very important to people that come from countries like that. Um, obviously, it's important to other people too. But, but it's it's of the utmost because that signifies how successful. I mean, these people have changed their children's whole lives by immigrating yeah. here. And they're making the most of it. They're trying to be, let their children become as a, the most successful they can be. Yeah. So they had enough money after they bought their house. They, Again, they were hard workers. So they bought a Lexus um, and hand drove a Mercedes. It was very, they lived a life of like, how do I even put this? A life of luxury, but in a minimal sense. Minimalistic, yeah, yes, for sure. They had a lot of nice things, but they worked very hard for those. And then everything else, they were quite frugal so that they could save to have a big, large savings. So they had accumulated around $200,000 in savings. And their parents, one part of, you know, especially the Asian community is there's something called tiger parents. And this is referred to, when you hear about tiger parenting, it's basically, it's been used to describe a parenting style that uses harsh tactics like fear and shame, but it also prioritizes the familial closeness. And tiger parents usually prioritize their children's schoolwork above everything else and they highly encourage their children to participate in activities that are beneficial um, and like increasing to increasing the children's chance of getting into a really good university and they can constantly propel their children towards their commitment towards excellence like it's like we want you to be great even if the kid doesn't want to be great so again growing up with a lot of asian children to immigrant parents you i saw that all the time yeah well they would be the ones that were sneaking out and doing all that other stuff because again it's because the thing is is like your parents have this set of goals from the country that you came from mm -hmm. but you've been raised here with a bunch of people that also, don't prioritize that stuff yes plus you have to think in usually this is how it goes the person the parents family they didn't they struggled they you know they were poor usually um they didn't have that same that same they want to provide for their kids what they didn't have and in the sense of doing that in what happens is sometimes the kids get burnt out well they don't even they get used <laughs> to this lifestyle that you're providing and that all you have to do is you know your schoolwork and whatever but at the end of the day, you know, life does need balance. And kids kids that are raised by people who are referred to as tiger parents, they can't have social outings. They don't go to school functions. They don't go to things like sleepovers. And, yeah. you know, they're not definitely not allowed boyfriends or girlfriends. Yeah, they're not That's, allowed to date at all, no, for sure. No, no. So when Jennifer was four, she was enrolled in piano. So she started taking piano lessons and 
she started also taking figure skating classes where she trained most days during the week. So she had hopes of becoming an Olympic figure skating champion until she tore a ligament in her right knee. Jennifer attended Mary Ward Catholic Secondary School where she played the flute in the school band. And according to her high school friend, Han was seen as the classic tiger dad. And Bick was basically just his reluctant accomplice. So the dad had, you know, the the drive, the power, like you have to do this, you have to do that. He was the one who kind of laid the ground rules and the mom just... Well, and he also made sure that, like, he would he would make sure that the mom enforced the rules. Exactly. I'm sure that when it was just the two of them, the mom was probably a little bit, or just the three, you know, the mom with the kids. I think that she was a little less, but also I think they were working, both of them were working all the time. Yeah. So despite her parents' high expectations of her, well, her, wait, first, her brother always did very well, did well in school, um... At the time of the, his parents' murder, he was actually a, like a mechanical engineer because his dad and mom worked in a factory that made car parts, like we said, and they had such a high, you know, they wanted their son to be better. They didn't want him to make car parts. They wanted him to design them, design cars. So, but Jennifer, she was also the oldest. So, and again, you're growing up in a completely different country with completely different things that are happening and different people who are kind of, you know, you get different friend groups and everyone is from a different upbringing. So everybody is going to be well, a little bit different. And um, I read some things about the school that she attended. The The Catholic school that she attended was, it was a little bit different from other schools in where it was kind of bohemian. Like there was there was a lot, there was a lot of different types of kids mm-hmm. and a lot of them had a lot of talent and were a little bit quirky mm. and she really fit like in class. yeah it was like the, it was like <laughs> a whole school of theater class yeah basically. i love theater class I love and all the theater kids. she fit in with everyone she was popular she was friendly and yeah. um it was said she like carried herself well she looked confident so obviously someone like that is going to draw a lot of friends and when you're not allowed to hang out with a lot of friends after school then that's going to be like super frustrating yeah and we all know when you're a teenager it's the end of the world but if you are too if you have you've been raised to respect 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 obviously we all should respect our parents but in the asian culture a a lot of asian cultures respect is held as the highest regard right so despite, again, despite her parents really trying to hone in on her, her grades were pretty average. Like she never she like a excelled. like 70, 70% average. Which I mean, I would just strive for 50 all through school. Like <laughs> true, one time true. I had to bribe the teacher to clean the overhead projector so that I could get 50. 250. Yeah, yeah, I was at like 48. He did it. So thanks, <laughs> Mr. Kwok. <laughs> so basically she would forge report cards she would make she started young forging report cards because again think of the fear that she might have to to let down her parents is a sign of disrespect you have no even i've heard some people getting 89 percent, and their parents being like that is not good enough you know and it's like oh fuck if kears came home with 80 percent, i would throw him a party like i would (laughs) probably buy him a car he was 11 but i'd be like oh my god that's amazing (laughs) but well, so, and yeah, she would, she would like tape things together mm-hmm. and print off stuff and then, yeah, like give it to them. And I guess because 
they came from somewhere different. Maybe they didn't know what things were supposed to look like, or maybe she was doing a really good job of forging things. Yeah. So Jennifer actually failed calculus class in grade 12, and Ryerson University, where she had uh, already gotten her early admission, they rescinded her early admission. Well, because she didn't even graduate high school. No. And so she couldn't bear to be perceived as a failure, especially to her parents. So instead, she just basically pretended like she was going to university all these times. She actually was working um, in cafes. She was teaching piano. She was doing all these other things. And she told her parents that she had won all these scholarships. And later she falsely claimed that she actually got accepted into a pharmacology program at the University of Toronto. And so let's just say she actually forged her high school diploma. Mm -hmm. She forged the um, scholarship papers. She is good. Like, she, <laughs> she forged shit. her all of her Policy. college yeah. stuff from she her even, first one. She even bought textbooks and yeah. would sit and write notes and stuff so that she could like show her parents her notes. And her parents would drop her off at the school. Mm-hmm. They'd pick her up. Yeah, but then... she did request permission from her parents uh, to stay with a friend throughout the week. Yeah. So, like, you know, she would say like, oh, you know, you guys driving me. Maybe I could just stay with my friend, whoever. Yeah, I have to study so hard. Yeah. I can't come home. But what actually happened is she was actually staying and living, basically, with her boyfriend, Daniel Wong. So she had met him in high school and he came from a Chinese Filipino family. Um, he lived in Ajax and he worked at a Boston pizza, but he also sold weed on the side. So we all know. Someone. Yeah, I think he was. <laughs> I actually I, know someone who works at Boston pizza and sells weed on the side. I think side. he actually also dealt harder drugs too. Yeah. Well, what happened was while she was pretending to complete her degree at the University of Toronto, she told her parents that she started working as a volunteer at the hospital for sick kids. Like if you're going to make up a lie, maybe <laughs> keep the fucking sick kids out of it. Like, yeah, Jesus. But so they started to become suspicious when they realized that she didn't have a hospital badge or like a you know she didn't even have a uniform volunteer. or anything no and so they one time they followed her there and um the dad said Bic you go in and make sure that she's going and her and she knew her mom was following her so she hid for three hours <laughs> in the operating part of the hospital well by the time she was 24 um she'd basically Wong, so the boyfriend had based, had grown weary because imagine how hard it is trying to pursue a relationship with someone when you're constantly getting like, sorry, I can't come, sorry this, or yeah. looking out for the parents. Like that must be really daunting. Like, <laughs> And in the interview that I heard with him, he said at first she would say that she couldn't tell her parents because he didn't make enough money. Mm -hmm. And then she said, it's because you're mixed Filipino and Chinese. Yeah, I think that's probably the only reason yeah. is the mix, which again, some cultures are more, how do I word this? Yeah. Yes, <laughs> they could be a little bit racist. And it, I mean, it comes in all forms, right? Yeah. There's racist people. Well, there's all... perceptions. Everything exactly. is, is, you know, perceived with the way that they've grown up and it's not correct. No. And it's just the way they've perceived things in a racist manner that's... Yeah, but we've talked about that always. You know, a lot of the time you're born with this clean slate. You learn things as you, by the people who are raising you, by the yeah. people who surround you in your environment, they're the ones that are giving you your 
outlook on life. So if somebody is sitting there and they, you know, it's o- you can only be Vietnamese, you can only be, I think they were actually Chinese. They were Vietnamese. a mixture. Yeah, yeah, but I think. Which is ironic. You, but that's the thing. You've it's heard. It's okay to be Chinese Vietnamese, but well, you can't be says, Filipino. Ali Wong will say, like it's one of the, these comedians that I, she's, she's Asian, but yeah. she's mixed. But it's like, mm-hmm. you can only be a certain kind of mixed because certain types of Asians are, are racist to other certain types of Asians. Yeah. And you see that a lot. And especially like, yeah, with this Filipino, um, Koreans. I know Koreans. I have a girlfriend who's Korean, who's actually one of our number one fans, but she's mixed with white. And I know that it didn't go, it, could, it couldn't have gone smoothly, you know, because the yeah. parents are like, what? <laughs> You know, yeah. your your daughter goes and gets pregnant by someone who is not what you were expecting or what you were basically. Somehow I know about that. Yeah. Well, you know her. <laughs> yeah. But somehow I also have mixed kids, which oh, is yeah. like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. Everyone always thought you were the nanny because. Yeah. yeah. So in spring of 2010, Pan, so Jennifer, was in contact with a guy named Andrew Montemayor. So he was a high school friend and basically he had been boasting about robbing people. And this was the first time that she kind of went up to somebody and kind of brought up, would you be into murdering my parents? Well, and he said at one point, he brought it up first and said, at one point I hated my dad so much. I thought about killing him. And then that stuck with her and she did approach him later and say that. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess when that happens, I don't know. I mean, for five minutes, I thought you were too tough on me, but you weren't. It was probably just because I... Did you think about killing me? (laughs) No, no, but that's what I mean. I guess it has to get really to this extreme. Um, I mean, I might have thought about it like briefly in like a second, (laughs) but you probably thought about killing me too. I thought about it all the time. Yeah, exactly. On your drives to hope. It's like, please, I hope I don't kill my daughter. Yeah, that's basically what it was. But no, I, I think that it has to get to such an extreme... Like it's, well, it is and, abuse, and at the, right? At it, the point we we haven't said at the point of her being twenty four years old, not only was she living this whole lie, but her parents eventually found out that she was not working in the hospital, and they like mm-hmm. took her phone and her computer. And well, they made her stay home. They like kept. They her, like, like hostage, had her hostage, basically. and and that's the thing is like she was an adult, but she was still being treated like a fourteen year old. Yeah. Yeah, so, I had a friend like that who we were like literally, I think I already had cures. He was like big and old already. And my friend was like, I'm grounded again. Like, You're grounded? Like, can you come pick me up from the bus? Like, can you pick me up from the bus stop? Like, I'm grounded. Like, I don't want to be. It's like, what? Like, you know, it's crazy that p- parents think that you can control your adult children. Really, you need to let your expectations. I think if everybody kind of brings their expectations down and your mind should have been brought up a little bit. Because yeah. <laughs> I, well, because I moved out of my parents' house when I was 14 years yeah, old. My dad raised you. Yeah. And yeah. I just pretty much free balled around whatever. So yeah. by the time I had kids, it was just like, they were my homies. Like, yeah. hey, okay. Well, yeah. Whoa. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like, so I think, yeah, like some people need to bring their expectations down. Some yeah. people need to bring their expectations up. Well, thank you. Yes. Yeah. But but also I think that when you are like Gypsy Rose, right? You could see in this loving light that the mom was doing. Obviously that's crazy, like yeah. whatever. But this is like seeing that love that you have for your parents, but then it's like, you know, there's no balance in yeah, the rest of there your life. There was really no no balance there. No. And so when she was like thought about it and said like, 
Oh, this guy said he'd kill his dad. You'd think you'd kill my parents? Like, (laughs) was like a probably like a light bulb went over her head. Yeah, like oh my gosh, that's a possibility. Fuck yeah, that's a good idea. Well, and also her her mother and father had quite a large savings. So yes, this was motivated by her and her hate towards her parents' control over her. I think that was the major thing. But it also came from like this financial like hey if I kill my parents I could have all this freedom and I could have all this money well and Daniel like you were just starting to say had had kind of lost interest so Mm -hmm. he he had started seeing someone else but he was still leading her on they were still Mm -hmm. talking he was still encouraging her to you know say dirty things to him and stuff like that so that's also probably another yeah another big thing that played into it was then she could be with Daniel yeah exactly and I think when you're because yes she was 24 but when you're coddled and you're controlled and you're very like kept away from the real world that probably does have some kind of like factor and stunting yeah how old you really are in your mental totally. age so yeah basically her as soon as that guy said that, she kind of went like, ding. And she asked if he would be into killing her parents. It's just like, you want to go for coffee? Like, like very, no, it was just, yeah. <laughs> so he lived in Brampton and um, he had another man, like he had set up her to talk to another guy because kind of basically I think she started to get more serious about it. Yeah. And she asked Daniel to help her orchestrate this. So... Leonard Roy Crawford, who was born in Jamaica, but he was living in Toronto and he went by Homeboy, gave her a SIM card and an iPhone so that she could contact Crawford without uh, using her actual cell phone. So we've heard burners. (laughs) Burner phones are never a good idea because when someone finds them and they're like, what the fuck? Well, and this girl's getting her phone taken away every five minutes. So she clearly needed to have. Yeah, her parents took her phone, so (laughs) they didn't snap it in half. Sometimes phones need to be snapped in half. I think you snapped two of my phones in half. Yeah, well, you fucking deserved it. Mom so. was also a little bit of a spaz, but I was bad as fuck. So that's no, uh, no hard <laughs> feelings there. You'll see. So the murder took place at the pan house, like we described, um, on November 8th, 2010. Jennifer had unlocked the front door when she, and she had text using her burner phone, a text that said VIP access. So as soon as these intruders got the call or the text, the signal. Um, and I think she flicked a light on and off. It was caught, yeah. caught on camera later. Yes, because there was her neighbor uh, directly across had, had, had camera. cameras. And in this time, it wasn't as uh, common. common to have It was like cameras. not really that common at all. Now we've cameras. talked about it. You like <laughs> don't do anything anywhere because someone's watching you. So three masked men entered the Pan residence and confronted Bick while she was in the living room. One of the men went upstairs and woke up Pan by placing a muzzle of a gun onto his head. According to Jennifer at this time, she was on the phone in her room and she had heard steps who she knew wasn't her parents. So she pointed her, you know, put her head out the, at the door and saw a gun pointed right in her face. She knew just by listening to the footsteps they weren't her parents. Hmm. So what had happened is, in I'm assuming, because Jennifer is telling the police one thing, but when she heard her father screaming, 
it obviously is going to make everything else come to light. Because if there's if there's three of you and two of you are dead, only one of you is going to be the yeah. one to tell the story. Yeah. So Jennifer had said before it, this all came out that she was the one that orchestrated it, that her parents um, had been downstairs. This man had a gun outside her room. She checked who it was, brought her down. Brought her all around the house, tied up her hands. It was three black guys, apparently. Three black guys, ransacked, but they all had masks on. Yeah, so, so, I mean, again, we could talk about... And she's tied to the banister, but she's somehow talking on the phone. Well, no. So first, they just tied her hands behind her back, and then one of the men brought her from room to room while they ransacked the house looking for things. But obviously, we know robbery was not the motive here. So another masked man brought Han and Bick downstairs to the basement and they told them to lay on their stomachs and put blankets over their head and five shots were heard. So again, after that, Jennifer's thinking, okay, my parents are dead. I'm going to go up. I'm going to tie, like, tie me to the banister and I'm going to call the police. So the police, when they got there, were initially like very confused because things were not adding up to the general public. Once this came out, she looked like a, you know, a poor, poor victim, poor victim. Her mother was killed. Her dad, her father was in a coma, but really quickly, like the police were like, Kay, so where was your phone? And she was like, it was in my waistband. And, and when they did like question her about it, she did a reenactment and she, she was did. able to make the phone call and kind of do it behind her back like that. But the thing is, is when she reenacted it, she could only get the phone. She could only reach to get the phone like a foot and a half from her face. And then she was like, yeah, I was yelling, which you can tell clearly in the phone call. Like she wasn't yelling. She wasn't. And she could hear. And back in those times, the phones weren't as. It was a flip phone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or Blackberry. I think she had too. Yeah. But yeah. No. Well, that's the thing. Investigators see this <laughs> stuff all the time. They yeah. know how a victim will be. They know if you're really tied up, like if you're going to be tied up by an intruder, they're not going to make it so that your hands are so free that you could just, and they're going to probably take your cell phone. Well, they're probably going to shoot you they're when they shot the rest of your you. family. Exactly. And her, the rest of her um, family, the people that, that were interviewed were, were telling like, what a fucking liar she was about yeah. everything. Yeah. So it was all kind of happening at once. Yeah. And it had all come out that, because the, the parents were like, this was a big deal when they found out that she had lied about going to university. She lied about working at the hospital. She lied about all this stuff. She so, was basically living with her boyfriend's family. Mm -hmm. She had lied at one other point in her earlier years about um, being gang raped by five guys. Mm -hmm. Like she, she was like a compulsive liar. Yeah. And she actually lied to her boyfriend about yeah. that when he was seeing another girl. She yeah. even mailed herself a bullet and said like, yeah. it's your girlfriend that you're seeing now that's doing all this horrible stuff to me. And she orchestrated me to be raped and all this stuff. So yeah, clearly she had an, uh, like a bad rap. She had a, a, yeah. She had a lying problem. Yeah. And so the police people spoke freely about that to the police. Yeah. Even her boyfriend, when her boyfriend was interviewed, the first thing he said was, yeah, she wanted to kill her parents. So I don't know why you would implicate <laughs> yourself really, because the, if it's not going to take much digging for them to realize Find out who was involved. Yeah. And the police asked him, how much do you think, you know, being that you're in the drug trade, how much do you think that it would cost to have someone murdered? And he's like, uh, I don't know. Like if I had to say how much it would cost, 
probably around ten thousand dollars like hello yeah they were pretty they weren't that smart for sure no and like i said for the first couple weeks she was looked at as like oh my god there's yeah the general public's feeling sorry for her so horrible to be in the house while your parents are murdered but she was arrested on november 22nd so that's that's literally 12 days later well because han survived yes so he woke up from his coma (laughs) and then the thoughts of okay why is this man screaming because the last thing that bick said her last words were please whatever you do do not hurt my daughter yeah and then she was murdered but so if you think about it for the father to not run right away to to see if his daughter daughter was okay he ran out the front door instead yeah probably because he was feared like he feared his for his life and his safety and his wife is dead in the basement and his daughter is because after when the police spoke to him he said my daughter was walking up the stairs with a white man and they looked buddy buddy and the next thing you knew we were all being taken and you know obviously she kind of made it seem like she wasn't involved but he knew he knew and i think he knew her pretty well and he knew again you know your kids very you know you know when they're lying yeah i mean maybe it takes a little while because they get really good at it but you do got away with it for so many years and Mm -hmm. then once the scope of everything she had lied about came to i mean for sure he was like this person planned it Mm -hmm. so in she yeah as soon as her dad woke up she was arrested basically what is what happened and the trial of her and her accomplices began on March 19th, 2014 in Newmarket and continued for 10 months. All pled not guilty um, of first degree murder, attempted murder and conspiracy to commit murder. And at the trial, York Regional Police evidence included exhaustive tracking of the mobile device movements, text message traffic, including over 100 messages sent between Pan and Wong in the six hours prior to the killing. Further evidence centered around the typical nature of the break-in, robbery, robbery with air quotes, shootings and irregularities in Pan's testimony. Her obsession with Wong, her lack of true emotion, and a confession regarding the attack. Because actually what happened was when Jennifer was initially like, they're like, you did this. She was like, I did. I hired them. I hired them, but I I hired them to come and kill me. Because I didn't want to bring shame on my family by committing suicide. It's like, what? But you're the only person that they didn't kill? Yeah. But then she obviously had a... Botched. (laughs) It's pretty botched. But (laughs) she also was like, what did she say? Oh, I couldn't... I changed my mind last minute and I couldn't come up with the money. So then they just came and killed my parents. Like, she's really grasping for straws at this point. So, again, her and her co-accused. There was three three other guys. But one of the uh, person actually has never been found the person who actually did the the shootings oh they have never found that person because the other people never said anything so around summer of 2014 the case was declared a mistrial and in december 2015 cardi received cardi is one of the guy um who received so there's like four people but some of the names yeah it was a little confusing because some of the names it was like someone just orchestrating it and some putting it in the plan into action yeah, but then so there was, everyone that was involved in the planning stages yeah so trial went as you can expect um 
in Jennifer Canada. in Canada. Yeah, <laughs> they were like, "You bad girl," you know, yeah. like. And she was sentenced to life with no chance of parole for 25 years for the murder of her mother and the attempted murder of her father. But you know, in 25 years, she'll probably get out. In 20 years, she'll probably get out for good behavior. Probably next week. Probably next week. And uh, we didn't do this episode. (laughs) (laughs) So despite the objections of the defense lawyers, the judge filed the order. Um, What is happening right now? Like I said, this was in 2014. But what happened in April of this year, May of 2023, is they actually found that she's entitled to a new trial. All her and the co-accused. Because the judge in the trial, in her original trial basically erred in saying you can say to the jury you can choose first degree murder or attempted murder and that's it yeah he didn't put any of the options in like second degree murder manslaughter which is basically leading the jury right into a certain i mean it's cut and fucking dry you know that this girl it's not second degree and it's not manslaughter it is first degree murder and attempted but because of the fun loopholes we have in canada She's going to be having another trial where it's wasting our fucking tax dollars and everything for somebody who clearly murdered her parents out of like an immature, lovesick, I can't do anything hissy fit. Yeah. Right? Like you would have been 25 and then 26 and you could have fucking moved out and maybe not had anything to do with your parents. But instead, you don't think you brought shame on your family by murdering your mother? And then- Yeah. So she's not allowed to talk to anyone in her family. That's one of her conditions. Um, conditions. And um, her father basically said, like, I hope that this was worth it for you to murder your mother. And now look, like, yeah. It's huh. just, yeah. So she will get a new trial. And, yeah, so. I guess we'll see what happens. Yeah. So, yep. That's basically uh basically all it's it sucks because when the mother's funeral was happening um she was the one that had to plan it and stuff so it's like because yeah the dad was still in his coma oh so she wasn't charged yet no because she was charged about 12 days later remember but with those first 12 days she was just this victim and this poor sad girl who was in the home while there was a horrible home invasion but i think pretty quickly the real uh the real story came out and yeah, there's hours and hours and hours. I mm. listen to hours of them questioning her. Yeah, and if you guys can go yeah. and listen to the the um, the nine one one call. call because you do as much as you can't. You hear hysteria in the whole conversation, but when you hear the dad start to scream, you can almost <laughs> hear like a <gasps> like Uh-oh. a yeah, like her being like, "Oh fuck!" Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Well, that anyway, was episode forty eight. Yeah. So <laughs> the murder of. Of Bic and the attempted murder of Han Pan. Han Pan. Han Pan. And are we back in a couple more weeks We are. Again? We're back in two weeks. Oh my God. It's just a regular thing now, two weeks. Maybe it might be three sometimes. Because <laughs> I got, you know, it's just a lot. But I guess it'll just be depending on life. You want to hear something funny? Yeah. To end this episode. So I was watching, you know, I love Drake. Okay. Yeah. I love Drake because he's Canadian. He's... Seems like he's down to earth. I mean, I don't know. I've been a Drake fan forever. I still see him as the kid on the show. With so. the wheelchair? Yeah. Yeah, well. 
So listen to a couple albums. I will go away. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's funny because I was watching this interview that he did on a podcast and he's a true crime fan. Oh, yeah. Hey, Drake. Hey, Drake. And another thing is he's looking for more female drivers to drive him around. He doesn't oh. have any. So I was like, my mom could drive you. And then I could sit in the back of the limo <laughs> and give you like a real true crime <laughs> episode, you know. But Carlos didn't like that very much when I said that. Oh, whatever. It's on my hall pass list, so. He is on your hall pass <laughs> list, but is your I actually hall- don't think I have a hall pass list. Carlos well, your, would be like, Yeah, your hall pass list is probably not approved. My hall pass list was probably crumpled up and thrown in the garbage, so. But no, I thought that was really funny. And mine's wide open. Yeah, well, you, you don't even need a hall pass. You're just like a, like a. I am a like, hall pass. There you go. Yeah, you are a hall pass. That's <laughs> a good way to put it. Yeah. So, yeah, but. Um, forty nine fifty coming out. Yeah. Right? You guys, I would really like. As many of you as possible to message mm-hmm. uh, on any of our socials and yeah. please let us know. Like, Except episode- for threads because I don't know how the fuck to work that yet. Oh. So it's coming. It's coming. But I have I to remember we're also slow with that kind of stuff because yeah. we're both old. Yeah. But uh, just, yeah, I would really like some input on episode 50 because it's a big one. Like 50 episodes. Yeah. Like we're going to do probably a two-parter. Up. Because I would yeah. assume that 50 is going to be a big one. Unless you suggest a shitty short one, then whatever. There you go. Then we'll be like that. Yeah. yeah. But Maybe we should do a contest. Draw. Let's put a it. bunch of the names if we have enough names in the hat. Yeah. We'll do it. Did you see the hat that Danica's wearing? Oh, wearing? yeah. We got uh, the Some Murder merch. With My Mother hat. And it actually says right here where I talk murder with my mother on the side. So if you guys uh, want to get a hat and model it, what camera do I look at? <laughs> But yeah, here's a hat. It's not like the fucking, the best was one of my best friends is pregnant right now and she's like completely out to lunch because she's really struggling. This baby is- She's sucking the life out of her. Sucking the life out of her. (laughs) But she's like, what does your hat stand for, babe? When I had just M-W-M-M and I was like, murder with my mother, babe. And she's like, that's the slowest thing I've ever asked you. I'm like, that's okay. No, no judgment. And she's also engaged. She got engaged yesterday. Congratulations, congratulations, Alexis Alexis. Alexis. I love you. Oh yeah, and Jonathan, congratulations (laughs) to both of you. (laughs) Forgot he's included, but congratulations. Um, Another thing I wanted to say, because you guys know how we love to support local um, businesses, local people that that are just making a change and in the neighborhood. I love that. So um, back in, when was it? I think it was January um, when we went to a sound bath at Experience Wellness. So Coco at Experience Wellness, I've known her for years. She's amazing. It's in Brookswood. It's so great. It's in Brookswood. There's a lot of crazy shit going on, like obviously, surprise, surprise. Um, And there's a lot of crazy going around too. So sometimes you just need to shut down, unwind. And I know a lot of people have got into meditating. Um, It's great. It's so great. If you're not meditating, try it. If you need help, reach out to Coco at Experience Wellness. And another person too is Priscilla Lala um, out of the Mindful Lab. So she's actually out more... uh, what is that? Northeast, west, west um, in the Burnaby area, North Burnaby. I just went to something called Drow and Flow, which was right up my alley. Um, basically, you just smoked a doobie and did yoga and then had a beautiful <laughs> sound bath. It was awesome. That sounds great. Yeah. So check out Experience Wellness in Brookswood and ask for Coco and check out Lala's place, the Mindful Lab in Burnaby. If you guys have any questions, I can link their socials. So Except she'll try. I'll try to link our socials (laughs) because you guys know how that works. But yeah, well, 
thanks you guys for coming back and coming to listen. I know yeah. we caught you off guard with this so fast, like, holy shit. I know everyone's probably like, it's probably going to be three more months now. I told Brent today and he was like, what? Yeah, What's see? it coming out? There you go. Yeah. Well. So surprise, motherfuckers. Surprise, motherfuckers. Small fries, motherfuckers. Alex, that one was for you. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was episode 48 of Murder With My Mother, the true crime podcast where I talk murder with my mother. Bye, Bye guys. guys.